Although the lines between opera and theater occasionally blur, they are both quite distinct forms. But what happens when directors and composers cross over into both worlds? Hello, I'm Melissa Rose Bernardo from Entertainment Weekly. Joining me today to discuss the challenges, similarities, and differences working in both worlds are composer Michael John Lacuza, whose work will be part of the upcoming American Music Voices Project at the Signature in Virginia. Diane Paulus, a director of both opera and theater, who is the artistic director of the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, and Stephen Wadsworth, director of opera studies for the Juilliard Opera Center. Welcome. I'd like to talk about the difference between musicals and opera. And I read this great quote from composer Stephen Schwartz. He said, it's like the Supreme Court definition of pornography. You can't quite define it, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm going to ask you guys to define it. I think the differences you know, between the two might be, you could say, traditions and, um, uh, and expectations of the audience. And um, those might be two uh, major you know, reasons why we call one thing musical theater and one thing opera. Uh, for myself, I'm just speaking for myself, uh, I, um, uh, I, the process for me writing is the same whether or not I'm working in an operatic venue or in a musical theater venue. It's the same process for myself. Now, in the opera world, I have a little bit more leeway to be a bit more experimental, possibly, and not worry so much about the commercial aspects of things. Um, uh, on the other hand, I don't have the in musical theater, I don't necessarily have the trained voices that I, that I enjoy um, having. But however, I try to use both uh, the take a little bit of this and I take a little bit of that because I think the best things in opera are, are things that we've borrowed from music theater, and the best things in music theater are the stuff that we borrow from opera. Yeah. I think that that when you talk about American opera, I mean we Americans live with this sort of behemoth borrowed art form called opera, which was basically invented and cultivated by Western European, well, mm -hmm. also Eastern European culture. And so we, most of our repertoire is non-American work. So the issue of, uh, of American opera is where the conversation gets really interesting and where the lines must necessarily blur. I mean, if we're ever going to have something, if we're ever going to have a body of work in American opera, it has to be something which pays attention to jazz and song form and all the other indigenous American musical forms, um, and not just be sort of, you know, big old imitations of European operatic form. So I think when we talk about, in terms of our own culture and how we use opera and how we make opera and how we make musical theater. I mean, you've certainly made pieces which have seriously blurred the lines and pushed very ambitiously into through composed, um, uh, harmonically complex, uh, formerly broken down work, which is not at all like, you know, American musical theater and is more like American opera in a lot of ways, but which clearly is rooted in that. So I think, I, obviously, our hope in American opera is this kind of work, which, which breaks it down. And it doesn't really matter if the Lyric Opera of Chicago is doing Sweeney Todd, or if, like in the old days, they do you know, the medium, Minotti's opera on Broadway, which they did. Yeah. They just so. do it unamplified. Right. <laughs> That's the difference. But a lot of things used <laughs> to be done unamplified. <clears throat> no, I know. I mean, yeah. I did Kiss Me Kate this summer at Glimmerglass. Yeah. 
and it was a big deal that we were doing it without microphones. And actually, probably the hardest part of it was finding talent, you know, especially young actors who could project in a 900-seat yeah. house and be yeah. heard, you know. Yeah. But did you use the original orchestrations? We did. That, that we did. You can do that without amplification because that, those orchestrations are written. They're for so beautifully that. written, and yeah. yeah. There's a, a there's a big contention about amplification in opera. That's why, I mean, and uh, I, I was talking about it with, uh, with a friend the other day too. I feel like you know that if we limit ourselves to to um, staying within the tradition of non-amplification, mm. we're sort of limiting ourselves in terms of what we can create in the opera of house course. too. I mean, yeah. if, if we didn't use the innovations that were available to us, we wouldn't have built Carnegie Hall or for them even going back to building the Fenice. So if we have the technology mm. to create an amplification and a sound design, and we have the talent and the intellect behind that, I think we should go ahead and do it because sure. it's a fascinating you know, it's a, it's thing. It's dicey, I mean, in opera, obviously we want to hear that voice and not just the voice but the interplay of voice and orchestra and mm -hmm. you want to hear it in an acoustic which is friendly to that um, we've gone ahead and built ourselves some theaters which are not essentially friendly and or the new york state theater them. for yeah. example has, mm -hmm. has has been this has been a constant ongoing thing where it's a ballet house where the new york city opera also performs and they've had to put in a kind of amplification system makes everybody in opera crazy because you sort of want to go in there and experience the naked voice without a lot of this but dr atomic at the met the new john adams piece is um is all mic'd everyone's mm -hmm. mic'd mm -hmm. Um, and it's a score that has a certain amount of electronic well, that's uh, where you probably stuff need in it, to but it's it also down. just an enormous orchestra uh, through which, arguably, um, a, a naked voice couldn't cut, although I, I have questions about that. And it's a troubling question for people who really believe in, you know, you might want to just say live theater, that is to say unaided Sound. Unmediated, yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's fine to go see a show which uses enhancement for theatrically, but I question whether we should be curating rep that was imagined and heard by its creators right. as being acoustic, um, in a way that that adds a big load of electronics. Right. Well, it goes to your point about if we're going to create new American opera and call it that. We have to yeah. use technology, forces, yeah. orchestrations that might dictate the use of yeah. amplification, not for enhancement, but actually for That's theatrical the effects. Yeah. Totally yeah. That's drama. The thing about, well, you'll be opening here on Broadway right. soon, and you recognize as you looked at theater houses to present the show in, and what they've done, and you know as well as what they've done to, these, to a lot of the Broadway houses, um, that they've shoved their orchestral pits underneath the stage so that there's no choice but them to be ampli amplified. They're which like in another room. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you have a sound guy in a booth in the back. It's just, it becomes a very, very uh, house of cards in effect. Mm -hmm. And um, so therefore, you sometimes go to a Broadway show and you just can't hear anything because the design right. has not been carefully thought through. And, um, and because the theaters have been so modified, where the producers needed the extra two rows and ripped out the, the pit right. uh, for what yeah. had been the Russell, you don't, wouldn't hear actually mm -hmm. the actual Russell Bennett orchestrations anymore yeah. in, in a house. Now, on the other hand, uh, South Pacific, uh, you, you hear this very, very clearly, and that show is amplified. And, um, and, and I think they did a really, really fine job with that in that case. 
Um, anyway, that's, you know, that, that, that might be, I don't know if that's necessarily a difference between music theater and opera, per se. Well, you know, go back <laughs> to you know, the old-fashioned old yeah. definition that used, to, that used to separate the two was that opera was a through-composed thing that was all sung. Well, of course, the egregious um, exceptions leap out at you immediately. A piece like Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio, which is basically a zingspiel or a sort of musical comedy, except that the numbers are these unbelievably <laughs> extended, musically complex and vocally really, really difficult mm. Uh, meditations that sit in the middle of this little book musical. Or really. Magic Flute. Magic, or Magic Flute, of yeah. course. Um, uh, and so you have the, and then you, you go from, you know, a little book scene, and then you go into like a quintet or a huge extended 20-minute quartet ensemble. Um, but, you know, that's clearly an opera. It could never be done by musical uh, theater performers. So which American musicals then would you guys consider operas. I know there are a lot over the years that I think people have. Well, you know, it's a sort of candy, early one that comes to mind is Most Happy Fella. Most Happy Something Fella. which, in, in, I've always had time for that. That's, that was the one that feels, in a way, it, it trades on legit singing in a way. Of course, Ezio Pinza doing South Pacific and various singers uh, from the operatic stage who've come into the musical theater and sung on those stages and brought that kind of sound into that. And that's created a, a taste for that. Mm -hmm. And it's, so there's a sort of cross-pollination. But I always think of Most Happy Fellows being a particularly a fabulous a score which sort of verges it. on opera, although it's pretty much a, it's a straightforward number musical. But I want to go back to something you said, though, Stephen. Uh, that musical theater people wouldn't be able to perform abduction, for instance. Uh, in the same token, a lot of our opera singers cannot perform um, Sweeney Todd. Mm -hmm. If you ever seen uh, Sweeney Todd in an opera house, uh, which I've had several times, yeah. you have Mrs. Lovett come out, and it's played by you know this opera singer who can't do the acting, yeah. can't can't convey the comedy, can't convey the pathos of that. And that's changing, though, is don't you feel? I mean, oh, particularly totally. through what you're. I really do at. feel and that. That would be a, that yeah. would be a wonderful thing is if, if yeah. we could have that sort of. There are a lot more opera singers who are crossovery and who can handle the style. There are a couple of really like Renee Fleming is started out as a jazz singer. I mean, she is hmm. a jazz singer. She's a very serious singer of popular mm -hmm. music mm -hmm. and jazz. She doesn't do that mostly, but. Um, just as an example, there are lots of great musicians who have a lot of uh, background in I'm jazz. I'm thinking Lauren Flanagan, for instance, is yeah, one of the great, is yeah. a great, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of acolytes to that, that form of going out there and being able to deliver an aria yeah. uh, that she would deliver, say, in the Virgil Thompson piece or yeah, uh, yeah. there. Well, Lauren and, also has another quality, which is that she's an absolutely uh, fiercely dedicated actor. Yes. So she's interested in being in that moment and exploding it. And that is part of what she considers her craft and she unusually among opera singers has pursued uh, the study of that and the analysis of that and the doing of that mm -hmm. in her work. So she's always been a kind of a... And she moves well too. Yeah. I think that that's part of yeah. the wonderful thing about musical. Well, I love musicals, is that you move in them. Mm -hmm. And in opera very often we don't move. You know, well, I think we do I a think lot that's more. changing and now. That is seriously I'm hoping changing. Yes, that it is. yes, yes. I think with, the, with young artists in opera yes. in particular, um, 
And you would know this from the training programs mm -hmm. that you, you know, you're running and exposed to. And I know the young artists that I deal with at Chicago Opera Theater, which yes. really uses young artists, and Glimmerglass. I mean, the young opera singer today is physical. And, you know, in fact, I mean, I, this whole discussion makes me think so much about what it's like to work in the two different mediums, not only mm -hmm. how we define them. Mm -hmm. And I think you can, I mean, to me, it's great theater, you know, great theater that has music. And we all aspire to the most powerful evocation of great theater. And in so many ways, it's just looking at what are the conditions and the way in which you approach the event that allow you to have that amazing yeah. um, kind of cathartic Great theater moment. is great theater is it's great, great theater. theater. Whether it's opera or musicals. And <coughs> anyway, to, to loop back to young singers, sometimes I find working with young opera singers that they're more uh, willing to you know, stand on their head mm -hmm. and do whatever you ask them to do than yeah. actors because they're, it's so interesting to me, what I love about opera singers are they're, they're virtuosic and they're like athletes. You know, they yeah, have a so. certain kind of, like a, a level of training. I'd be curious if you agree, since you, you know, really run yeah. the, one of the top training countries and programs in uh, the world. But I just find, you know, they, they come to the first day of rehearsal, they know the entire opera, memorized, coached, and studied for at least a year in advance. And if, you know, they make a mistake in the first music rehearsal, you know, they're full of total shame, you know, right, they sing right. the wrong note. I mean, it's a different, and then, I mean, even, the, even what fascinates me now that I run a theater is the whole pay structure, you know, in opera, artists are hired and you get paid per performance. You're not right. really paid, you know, it's, it, in the theater you get a weekly, it's rehearsal, it's previews, it's performances, it's all the same. In opera, it's like you get paid for the race you're gonna run. Yeah. It's that like Olympian mm -hmm. moment of... But you also can't run the race eight times a week. That's right. So that's why that all works out. So you don't get the weekly that you would get right. on a, doing a Broadway musical. But something about how that structure is, I really think, you know, gives there's something to learn from. There's it. something yeah. to learn from it for, in terms of the, the kind of fearlessness and the kind of, um, you know, m there's nothing better than an opening night in opera. I think, you know, because first of all, you haven't previewed for three weeks. <laughs> it's like you know, you've had one dress stakes rehearsal. Are way too the high. stakes are high, <laughs> and you know, you sit in the audience, you know, from a director's point of view, and you think, here it comes. They're going to hit that high C, like a, you know, they're going to jump the long jump, and it's hap it's going to happen tonight, and you know. There's that athletic um, kind of event of it that I just think. So I think that trickles back to sometimes the attitude of opera singers when they work. And I, I yeah, love that. Working with it, I mean, it, it's, it is true that very often singers who come in who, there are very few opera singers who have had any, who have had acting training. And physical training too. A few of them have mm -hmm. been trained. Uh, like there are few, just very few people, or like Lauren, really insist on pursuing it as a sort of career-long, not even a sidebar, but a, right. but Integral. a, a fundamental yeah. part of, of her whole of her work. Um, and there is a mandate now, and I have to say um, about Peter Gelb at the Met, that when he came in, he made, he made no bones about the fact that he was interested in camera-ready singers. He was interested in singers whose work was going to look great on a stage and look great in a camera. He also made the point that it didn't necessarily mean that people had to be thin and fit, but it did mean that they had to be interesting actors, that they had to be in control of their bodies. Well, the trickle-down effect of that through all over the country, through the conservatory and mm -hmm. university community, has been tremendous. So now there are all sorts of people getting 
much more concerned that this is a mandate. It comes from the top down. The Met is sort of, you know. It's no longer the fat lady. Yeah, it's no longer the, just that. You know, that. It has kind to be something more in theory. So this has affected the way kids. But, but, yeah. That's yeah. A, there, but there is a paradox, interestingly <laughs> enough, while that's happening in the <laughs> opera world, in the music theater world, you're finding more people who do just do the plant and sing and do the American Idol riffing. <laughs> it's true. And they don't act. Yes, yeah, that phenomenon. It's, it's the American Idol. You're so take right. Take a stroll it's down Broadway yeah. if you can afford it and go see those shows and you'll just see a lot of some I find very very poor acting a it's lot of true. very true. poor stage I think that and a lot of plant and sing and riff yeah. and, yeah. The, and the and the and time when you used to be a triple threat where you could you could be a That's comedian you could dance you could sing and that was what it meant to be on Broadway that's exactly yeah, right that you had true. the whole and you could do you know an O'Neill play and, and you could right. exactly right. The, the next season or whatever I think that it brings up something else I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about this I think that speaks to that problem speaks to how the view of what directing is has changed in the last Indeed. 25, 30 years. That I grew up thinking that directing was the art of telling a story on actors, telling a story of each character and telling the story of the opera with actors, principally as the sort of core craft of the director. Um, with the increasingly visual uh, with uh, with directors who increasingly lead with a visual foot forward and make a picture of a thing. It is true, I think, in sort of, especially in high production value venues, i.e. a lot of Broadway musicals, which are like supersonic um, visual events, that, that that value of scene work and good acting has somewhat receded. What do you think? Diane's the director. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I completely... Have you noticed that? Do you I, 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 I understand that, and I do notice that. I, I tend not to think it's just this, you know, new interest in the visual that has changed things, because mm -hmm. I think if you look historically, there were times where theater was spectacle, you know, before there was ever... Broadway, mm -hmm. whether you look at what Max sure. Reinhardt was doing or you look back to ancient Greece or, or the you history look, of opera. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like it's it's not necessarily the the interest in spectacles because I, I actually believe in opera and in theater, spectacle is something that's important. It's, I love it. I think it's great, but not without that core. The core. Thing. Yeah. So what, as in as much as you've noticed it, what have you felt was responsible for that? recessive gene of, um, of scene work and good acting in, say, the, the Broadway musical theater. You Not know, that it's absent. God knows. I, They're just brilliant I, I think it's something you mentioned place. about what you can do in opera versus what you can do in musical theater in terms of what's commercial, where you can take more. I mean, for me, what's yes. happened when you think about Broadway, it's just, I mean, I'm hoping when I take care of Broadway this spring, we will defy this. <laughs> but when you, when you tend to think about Broadway right now and, you know, this economy, or even, not even this economy, but the economic reality of doing a show, it's, it's a very thin band of commercial activity where you, the, the, the gold standard is can you run, how many years can you run? I think the shows where... Yeah. They were incredibly rich theatrical experiences with actors who were these amazing talents mm -hmm. and in cutting edge new work, musical plays, whatever. It wasn't about, you know, the race to 
be, you know, the next Mamma Mia. It just wasn't, you know, yeah. that's what we all look at. We all get sucked into it. That's what you want. That's when you'll really succeed on Broadway. Not if you've done a beautiful, heart-rending show with incredible performance, you know. Yeah. That might close in six months, and even yeah. though it was great, it's not going to be looked at as successful unless it's running for five years. Plus. So that's a huge reason so why I, we I, get I, off of core values and get I back do, to and that. and it's tourists. It's a tourist trade. It's you know, it's like, I mean, I don't mean to bash Broadway because I love it and I'm going to go join that community imminently. But I do feel it's <laughs> be very kind. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like a dream come true. That's the other reality. You know, you're a director and you sort no, of dream. No, I mean, I think we all esteem and love both art forms and going to the theater and going to the opera yes. and all of it. It's not about whether we like it or not, but it is about trying to figure out what the truth of the situation yes. is. But I, I, just to finish, I do feel like in opera, there's not this pressure, like in the theater, I don't care where you're doing the theater, off-Broadway, some teeny little theater, a fringe show downtown, out in the regional theater, somewhere in the back of your head you're thinking, is this a hit? Is someone gonna come see this? Is someone gonna transfer it? Is someone gonna move it to, you know? And, and in the opera, especially when you do the canon, I mean, you, do, you don't really think about I mean, even when you do a good I, production I of Hedda Gabler. I have to say that I disagree. Really? Yep, because right now, since co-productions have become, you know, the, an answer to the economic reality for opera companies in the last roughly 20 yes, years. Yes, it's true. Now, all of the sort of leading directors are thinking only about how many theaters might take their yes, Rosenkavalier or their Co-productions is different because it's, it's, it's still limited runs. It's not going to turn into the eight show a week to go to go back to why do yeah, we amplify, yeah, yeah, yeah. why don't we? Because yeah. you, in a musical theater situation... <laughs> yeah, well, it's still not for profit. Right, As right, opposed to right. commercials. A commercial theater is really... It's a different it's animal. Really it's really rough. And um, I've stayed away from it. But you still need to break even. It. Huh? You still need to break even. You need to break even. You need to break even. In the even opera? In Yes, but you're not you're well, not yes funding no. your opera from you have your ticket a lot sales. Of, you have subsidy, not necessarily have, very much from, I mean, really not very much from the government, but you have a lot of corporate. You it's have, assumed that it's yeah. subsidized. Yeah. It's closer to the European theater model. Yeah. I mean. And part of your job going into ART is, mm. to, is to find the monies for a budget um, of which earned income is only a percentage. It's not right, right. necessarily, it's not the, the major percentage either. That, that's part of the deal in not-for-profit theater. And not-for-profit theater, in my experience as a director, is definitely a much cozier home. It's a much happier place to work because I, I haven't been in the position where I've been wor worrying about transfers or anything like that. Right. I find that when I'm in Seattle Rep or McCarter or something like that, I can just do my work. Right, right. And that's great. And I've, I've never been able to make friends with commercial theater in New York because I just feel like that's a whole, uh, that's a bunch, that's a negotiation. That's a sort of a, you have to hit on a contract which doesn't necessarily end up serving the piece. The difference, uh, I, you know, going back to something that you brought up about what is the role of the director in, in terms of the opera and the music theater uh, venues is, I, I find, in musical theater land, mm. um, the director does play a far greater dramaturgical role than I've experienced in opera. Mm -hmm. And um, even in new opera, it, even in new opera, even in new opera, because first and foremost, they have a little bit more time to right. work on it as a dramaturg. In opera, our time is is limited. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't have the preview process in opera. Workshops. 
We do have we, workshops. We don't have workshops. We, we do, do have, have workshops. workshops. I, I had work, I've had workshops of, um, uh, or small-scale readings, staged readings, yeah. to, before prepping a thing for production. But it's a very, very limited time right. uh, for that. Maybe one orchestral rehearsal at the most yeah. before it's put on stage with the singer at, at the most. Uh, at least we have a zitz probe, and we have like maybe two, three, sometimes a month of previews for our musical theater work. Mm -hmm. um, the director plays a, a very, very important role in that dramaturgy role. In, in, in musicals, the best musicals, I find, is, is, is not what goes between the songs, between the arias, but mm -hmm. what is what goes between the, the arias. Mm -hmm. Not the arias themselves, but what goes between the arias. And the best directors that I've worked with, excuse me, <clears throat> Best directors I've worked with are those that understand that, that understand that tr that tr tra uh, transition makes the musical, yeah. mm -hmm. and transitions make the opera. I think they do, and, and that's I, the storytelling part yeah. that is so that's so essential to have, and and why you need to have a great director there as 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 a good dramaturg. And, I think uh, it's I think it is, however, true in opera that the, mm -hmm. there's more dramaturgical. When I did uh, Handel's Rodelinda at the Met, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I it was beautiful. I definitely did uh, dramaturg the piece. I even rewrote some of the Italian recitatives slightly. I mm -hmm. even changed a plot point in the third act because mm. it just isn't clear. Handel got to a sort of cul-de-sac at the mm -hmm. end of the second yes. act. He didn't know how to solve it. It's the one place where it formally falls apart. So I found an aria from an earlier opera, which is very much his practice, put it in there, slightly changed some things, rewrote some recits, and yeah, worked I, it out. It was very clear. And nobody was nobody was jumping up and down and saying that that was no, a it was wrong very smart thing to, to do. do. But see, you have taste. <laughs> <laughs> some people don't know what they're doing, and you see some outrageous productions of opera, and you just go, "Oh man, you've just obfuscated the entire passion and beauty of what you know." Uh, through is, through, through a, the, a directorial and, idea, and also or something. too, yes, and also too, the the negligence of the word. An mm. unqualified director is one who doesn't understand that it is prima la parola. It is the word first. Yes, music. We you, know, you read. Critics always yeah. say music is the most important thing in opera, and you just go, no, no word yeah. and music yeah, are the most important course. things in opera. And uh, when a director doesn't pay attention to the word, you see, it's this very is important. what this is what's bugging me these days about directors is that when they come to opera, there's this sort of there seems to be a sense that you can just go and make do the big picture and not pay attention to mm -hmm. the text, which in opera, of course, is both music and words, and they both have a lot of information in them, and you have to honor them both, and that's part of the art, uh, it's part of the craft of directing opera, per se. It would also be part of the craft of doing, a you know, too. yeah, one of your yeah. pieces, yeah. particularly, yeah. Or, or, you know, uh, an Adam Gettle piece, where we have more through composed stuff, we have more stuff that's going further afield of our standard you know, book musical. And hopefully, quality form. lyric. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I, I think, in, I think in America, we we have an unfortunate thing where a lot of our, uh, a lot of the most operas, of course, European, and and we hear it in Italian or German or whatever, and the translations that we know mm. come up to us in giant words on a screen. So, and they often, very often, come off like written by a six-year-old. You know, mm -hmm. or they're too jokey, or, or they're jo too British, terrible. or they're too yes. something. And it becomes a very, very uh, uncomfortable experience for the, uh, you know, maybe the first time opera goer to, to see that, or maybe uh, one who's been there for a long time to see that, you know. I prefer just not, I prefer not looking at the titles if I can avoid it, uh, the super titles. And um, 
or if I can, I sometimes will go see something in English to see how it translates in mm. English. I do believe in titles, although when they were only Sir and not just on the back of the seats, as at the Met or Santa Fe now, it's, it can be a problem. I mean, if you really work to make a picture, something you can't look away from, the last thing you want is, is huge letters the size of singers' heads. that might not <laughs> necessarily be right the right words. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, well, I think... And if I were a director, I'd go crazy. To well, you have to work you on them. You have to do them you every time. You, you would do them, Oh, I right? do my original yes. translations. Yeah. Good. Good. Every yeah. time when I did the Mo Mo yes. Mozart to Ponte cycle, I spent equal yeah. time translating See, my own titles that's what so that they happen act, very often. absolutely match the production yeah. and that their time, I mean laboriously, when is the title cued? So that it goes with the particular. It's you know, like doing a silent movie in a lot of respects. It is. Isn't it it is because you could get the laugh line in the wrong the moment. Ten years. It's oh, gotten better. Yes. The, yeah. the people at the Met and City Opera both work very hard on that, but. You have to make sure that you spend the time with the yeah, writer of the exactly. titles, if you're not the writer of the titles, to really bring it into sync to with the production and with the music and all that kind of stuff. One last note on titles. I saw a production of Peter Grimes that Philetta Lloyd directed in uh, London. Mm -hmm. It was, I think, Opera North, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And it came down to London, and I was uh, in London. To me, that was a revelatory moment mm -hmm. because it was Benjamin Britten, sung in English, no titles. Because, you know, in America, you go to see Benjamin Britten, you're going to get titles. Because that's sort of the, you the don't way put it goes. Up, Mrs. Rosenblatt writes a letter. No kidding. You know, I've, I've been <laughs> there, do. done that one, you mm. know, with general directors who say, I, I, I personally would love not to be titles, but I'll lose my uh, donors. What was so amazing about that experience is you literally sat like this on the edge of your seat and you were listening to the lines unfold in real is one of the most powerful experiences that I've had of, you know, what is this opera theater? That's, you know, you definitely, Peter Grimes is considered opera. But when I saw that production and it didn't have those, you know, mm -hmm. opera mm -hmm. convention trappings and it was this incredible mm -hmm. production done in the Sadler Wells, written for that theater actually, acoustics beautiful, and the way Britain has scored it so that you can hear all the words. You know, it's, it, it's exactly mm -hmm. orchestrated to support the storytelling. I mean, that was theater. I would never call that opera. I would never really call it, you know, Broadway musical theater. That was theater, musical theater. Yeah, but you could have you could have played it in a Broadway house and, you could have, and provided something. No, which could I mean, have been I was exciting, thinking even to some producers. Could <laughs> I bring that to the ART? That would be sublime you, theater. Yeah, but see, that's interesting that you know we we we're talking about acoustic in opera and yeah. how the, everything must be acoustic. Yet it has the wall of the the titles which um, distance you yeah. from the actual event on stage. And we have amplification in the musical, which is, I always find, that it's like that little guy in the booth going, mm -hmm. mm, and he's like standing between me and the singer. Yeah. And I don't know what that little guy in the back of the booth is doing back there, but he's sure making it loud and crummy sounding sometimes, you know, yeah. when I go in here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a wall between yeah. me and the experience yeah, that I yeah. should be having. I think it's so. true, but I think like all conventions and titles are becoming a convention, the audiences learn how to relegate that to a sort of tertiary position in their perception of something and that they will get better at that and then when it's when, and that when it's handled smartly and carefully in advance by the creative team then you can get That's something it. where they're not where you know I think the Met audience at its best wants to go they want to know exactly what that is, but it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they don't want to engage, mm -hmm. for example. Mm. I think all oh, audiences want to engage, things. and if you give them something compelling, if you right. give them 
uh, you know, consecutive theater moments that are cumulative right. and end with some sort of catharsis or a big event and a rush of feeling, then they will be able to put these other normally distancing things into to their use rather than, you know. Whatever. I did a terrible thing once down in the Houston Grand Opera. I was doing a translation of um, Zamir and Azor, Gretry's opera. It's mm. a little, mm. not very well-known piece, but there's just arias that mean absolutely nothing in the piece, but they're fabulous little pieces, and there was one big coloratura aria, and I had done the translation of the piece because it was sung in, in uh, uh, English, but the director was this German director who insisted that this particular aria could only be sung in German. I don't know, I just, it was a paid job, I did it. So I said, okay, so everything else was in English, but this one giant, long coloratura Aria, where he had the poor singer twirling hula hoops on her arms and juggling things. It was just, it was crazy. Right. So she's singing it all in German because she couldn't learn it in English. That was the, I found I it was the real reason uh -huh. because she was too busy juggling whatever she was doing. So I wrote, but I still had to write surtitles for it all. So I think in the middle of this aria, I just cut out and started putting my own thoughts down on paper. <laughs> I don't know what she's singing about. She's singing about a bird. And those were um, the titles? What are you going to have for dinner? I'm going to have some. Oh my God. And I just, and the audience went, died for it all because you know, it didn't matter what she was singing there. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the director said, it doesn't matter what she's singing, she's right, juggling. It was right, like, it was like, crazy. So once we've deconstructed it, we might as well funny. finish up deconstructing it with the titles. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To figure, well, <laughs> might as well make go it at least Use appealing. It. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, you guys are talking about titles. You write titles, are very involved. You're talking about how you write the translations. This sounds like incredibly time consuming stuff, how much time do you have as a director when you're talking about an opera? What's I think you have as much time as you are willing to make. I tend to do relatively theater. few, not, I mean, you know, I got spoiled. I, I did, I mean, you could say that. I did opera for 10 years before I did theater at the beginning of my career. So one thing, I had some advantages, which is I got to work with scale, which a lot of my colleagues in the regional theater in the state, you know, coming up in the, in the American theater, didn't have the budget or the big spaces to play with those things. So that was a tremendous deal. I also learned how to take a lot of time to prep something because opera plans more in advance, generally speaking. Something like mm -hmm. Chicago Opera Theater or Glimmerglass don't book, you know, Two years. four years in yeah. advance, uh, like the Met does. But, you know, each of the shows I did at the Met, I had, you know, three years at least to, to think about them and work on them. Yes, I'm working on other things as well, but I think the answer there is really that it's as much time as you want to put into it. But it is time consuming, and you do have to not do other things in order to prepare it in a certain way. I'm, I'm a sort of thoroughness person, so I've tended to do fewer shows and really focus on them. It just suits me, and I think I do better work that way. Um, but I like more time, and even for a play. If I know that I'm going to be doing, I mean, I did a, a series of plays by Marivaux, this French 18th century writer in the 90s, which all started at the McCarter, and I didn't have a lot of lead time for the first one, but then when the first one really worked and was exciting and we decided to do another one, then I had really two full years to make the translation of the play and really work out how that was going to be, and then three years before we did the third one. So that, that's the way I like to work, is mm. so that you, you can really, really consider it as thoroughly as possible. Now, what about the actual rehearsal process? Because like you said, if the actors are paid by performance, I imagine opera rehearsal schedules are much shorter than, say, for a 
production of you know, is a, that true a new Broadway musical. Not you know, it much. really depends. Something that drives me a little crazy in theater is warming up. You know, you go through preview and you're, well, it's the first preview. Give them a week and then they'll feel it more. You know, it's like, no, do it tonight. You yeah. Just like an opera, they do it tonight. There's no, we're warming up. You just dive off the cliff and you go. And I just like that. I think the audience feels that when there's an abandon to the I agree. To the I, I, I mean, if there was one thing I would offer as a criticism for a lot of my uh, people that I've met in the musical theater these days, particularly a younger generation coming up. I am old now. I realize this now. I'm talking about the kids. Oh, those kids. Those now, kids. now. Is, is the discipline. And mm -hmm. um, that, like I say, uh, if you can borrow a little bit from this genre, you can borrow a little bit from that. It makes for a really great mix. And one of the things I wish we could borrow more from yes. in, in the musical theater world is that discipline and the rigor. The, it's back the to rigor. the American Idol that you can become a star like this. And no, no kid is walking off the street and going to sing at the Met. Yeah, you would never think to do that. It's like you become a doctor. You got to go to school. You got to train. You got to do your internship. And it's they do sing over illnesses. Yep. And they do sing over injury and and, and yep. injuries that you can't even fathom. Mm -hmm. You know, in opera. So as a director, how do you guys handle that? How do you push actors to to go further to develop? So it's sort of a hard question to answer. I think there's one thing that you said sort of related here, that when you talked about you know singers just going for it, one of the things that my whole life as an opera director has been about is to try to, to minimize that mm. death and glory, throwing yourself off the cliff feeling, and actually going, actually using rehearsal and organizing rehearsal into it's so that it is, so you really direct the show, even in a situation which isn't necessarily in a system, which isn't necessarily put in place to support the director, right? Um, or that kind of process, but to make sure that by those singers, the time those singers get there, they're specific in every moment and emotionally open and physically free and owning whatever that staging happens to be and whatever style it happens to be. I mean, that's the sort of ideal. And when I think about training actors, I don't think about training actors to do work that I would want to do with them necessarily, but to do work that any director would do. So what do you need to be? You need to be physically released and free and mm. associative and you need to be mentally associative and free and you need to be emotionally open and indeed fearless so that you can go in there as this free instrument and go in any direction and all and also be able to use your technique to interpret what Diane says if she says to you you know I want you know I want this aria I, I, we're going to do this aria in German and you're going to have hula hoops how do you make that, how do you ground that and make that work for you in your, right? And if I You go say, to the conductor and you say, the director's crazy. Because <laughs> exactly. the conductor says, don't but listen you know, to the in director. In order to, well, to minimize all of that sort of, all of that tiresome, uh, that part of the conversation where we meet a director who isn't doing what we wish, what we wanted to do with the role. Or vice versa, you're right. a director and you're seeing you're saying, Oh, this singer's such a cow, she can't do anything. That happens in the theater too though. Of course it yeah. does. I mean, but the point is that to minimize that and to to give actors techniques so that they come in and they go, What is what is this weird director wanting? And what is it how am I gonna make this work and build a character instead of sitting around complaining or using my time by going to the conductor or anything else? Somehow to 
present. Of present. Yeah. Is I think what we you, all want. But you're sent right, and we all have different ways of of using rehearsal to get there. But how do you? How does a director? This is a curious part. How does a director in opera, where seven eighths of the time you're working with the dead, you're, I don't, no, you're working no, with, with dead people. You know, dead you people in the audience, or dead yeah. people on the stage? <laughs> well, well, sometimes, yes, I've seen that. I know, but it's not true. No, but not true seven-eighths dead. Yeah. Not no, true. it's true. It, uh, not like seven-eighths? Most, most of, of the opera that Two you thirds? work in are with dead composers <laughs> yeah. and dead lyrics. Oh, those, yeah, yeah. those dead, dead people. Yes. Gotcha. And, um, I thought you meant the actors. No, dead. goodness, no. Um, uh, how, how do you make, when first and foremost, which I think you both agree with me on, nothing is more joyous and more heartbreaking and more headachy than working with the living composer or, and uh, writer. And right, it's, it, it mm -hmm. gives you life when you work with someone alive. How do you work with someone who's dead and continue to have a relationship with that artist? Mm. Well, that, and not just be holy about it no, and but you know, about it. There are two it, things. So. One is, you know, it's like working on Shakespeare. You mm -hmm. never think about, I'm working with, you know, the dead person who I wish was here. You're, you're engaging like you engage mm -hmm. with any great text, like a Bible. You know, this constant, those great works are great because the deeper you go, the more they give back to you. Every line of Shakespeare has seven ways to read it or mm -hmm. understand it. You know, it's like a, a study. But what, so, you, but you, in other words, your, your, your interpretation of it would, is what the author wants. What the author wants, and I think in the opera, which is what I, I also love about opera, which we haven't talked about, is the relationship with the conductor. Mm -hmm. When you have a relationship yes. uh, that is, um, you know, fruitful, and for me, you know, to go back to your question about young directors in opera, I think, and opera singers relating to directors, if a director, I think in theater but also in opera, is plugged into the music, plugged into original intentions, and has respect for that, and studying that, mm -hmm. and and you can share that, and then explain ideas you might have about where you want to take. Then you know it's 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 what a director yeah. does. You you convert your cast. You get them to trust you. They get them when to you understand. When you lead them into the world. When you, you lead know, them into the world. It's a question yeah. of time, and this goes back to your question about preparation. If you're going to do Aeschylus. You need to learn a lot of things that you might not know. Now, you might be an Aeschylus freak, or you might be a fifth century before the Christian era freak. You might already have a big head start there. But in any case, you have to bring actors into a text that's 2,500 years old. I'm talking about this because I just did it. Now, in my experience of that, Bob Fagels was the translator. I went to him and I said, can we, I said, I, I love this translation. It's feels to me, although I can't say why, it feels more authentic than the others, uh, because I think the difficultness of the language is something that you're clearly not trying to step around. And he said, well, I think that's really true, and here are some things about Aeschylus. And we spent two years working on that play, on the Oresteia, and I learned a lot. So now I feel like I can do the Agamemnon and go in and do that. But that took a lot of time, and I think actors and directors both have to engage with the material. In, in the abstract, not just in the rehearsal room, but have to go and say, what, what did this writer, what might this writer have been thinking? To consider that from as many different angles as possible and to understand something about where it came from. If you do that work, then you can engage with classical repertoire. And I think there is, little, you know, 25, 30 years ago in any regional theater, you would see a slate of maybe six or seven plays, six of which would be classic plays meaning anything up to sort of 
a Tennessee Williams and going back to whatever. Um, and maybe one new play. Well, in its business of becoming inclusive of minority voices in the last roughly 20 years, the American theater doing something important and noble and at last has changed that balance so that now you have more new works than you have classic works. So you also have a generation of theater artists which has not been engaging with classical repertoire regularly. And I think that is a dietary deficiency. And I'm sorry about that, even <laughs> though I think it's the coin mm. we paid for something else really important with. I hope it will come back. I hope, I hope that we will be able to go to the theater and see new work in terms of old work. You definitely get more. that diet in opera, though. I mean, just even for me as a director. Yeah, you do more. I, I, I have yet to be hired to direct a Shakespeare play, even though I'd love to do it. Where I get my muscles, the diet, the food, has yeah. been in opera. To, yeah. to, to, to do Mozart. And you've done Verdi, you know, 17th century and Mozart, 18th century. Those, and I've done those things, too. I think, go, to go back to your question, it's an interest in what is the in original intention, not only of the author, but yeah. how was the piece Perform. That always interests me. What was the performance context? You know, when when these Monteverdi operas were done, were they done, or, or when you start looking at Magic Flute, which I'm prepping now, how that was done. It was different that Mozart opera in terms of the kind of public sensibility. You know, you so you try to learn as much as you can about the original intentions, and you know, it's delightful to think about Mozart writing these roles for living artists. It wasn't a classical thing. He, you know, we tend to think classical. That it's popular. He was, it was popular. He was taking who are the greatest stars with the most dazzling voices, and I'm going to go write for them. Um, and the funny guys, too. He's writing for his Absolutely. Absolutely. Know, so. so it was very practical that way. It was, it was performance. So. And it really doesn't have anything to do with what style you ultimately decide to direct your show in, what I'm talking about. It has to do with a kind of grounding and a... And a, and a fluency with that act of engagement with art and the sort of history and aesthetics and how those things work together. I think this is, this is what the thing that I feel is missing hmm. more now um, from directors' arsenals, and I, I, I lament that. Hmm. Uh, American directors or... A I would say that, you know, the, certainly European directors who have grown up in a culture, you know, you get some director who was born in Wuppertal in you know, 1955, that person probably went to see everything in Wuppertal. I mean, all Stanford, Connecticut would have an opera company if it were in Germany. All sure. of these little towns have got their own theater, ballet, um, and opera companies that are constantly working. So I think that these European directors have a lot more of this, of, of a more history in their blood. Europe has more history in its blood. Although, we have a short history. I mean, we can agree that. I mean, there's we really is, there's a definition of the genre of American musical theater. We call it American musical theater. Mm -hmm. right? Do we have an American opera? Is is a question that I've always uh, that people have asked me. Is there an American opera? And I don't really know how to answer that. Well, what are some you know? titles if if people said name an American opera? Well, at the moment, what they would do is they would name any one of five or ten pieces that have been done in the last sort of five or ten years, which are purposely, where the properties are purposely chosen because they have a marketable, you know, A Streetcar Named Desire by Andre Previn for, for San Francisco Opera, Dead Man Walking by Jake Heggie and Terrence McNally for Houston, uh, The End of the Affair. 
So right at the moment, there's uh, opera companies have this penchant for putting together a package and using name recognition. And sometimes I think that gets in front of artists actually needing to write about something and creating a work in the image of what they need to write about. Do you think you they know, got that from Broadway? <laughs> Say what? Do you think they got that from Broadway? I think they got it from I, Hollywood. I, I, I think what they got is commercial sensibility coming into not-for-profit because it's Well, they have to. I mean, they, they, have they, to. they have to. I mean, I do think, you know, those, th those decisions are driven not by just, you know, Let's make money for the hoot of it. I mean, I th every every institution is struggling desperately now. Is how do you make the work feel? I mean, it's a larger issue if it's not yeah. in your diet and you're not used to it. How do you get people out yeah. to see opera, to, to sell tickets? An to American opera, in order to make an American opera, I mean, there have been Blitzstein, Bernstein, all right down to you and others, and Adam Gettle. I mean, this is a... Uh, a, a noble line of people who are blurring that form, but every time the lines get blurred, you have to get out of the box. Every time you get out of the box, producers get shy because it isn't like what worked before, you know. And and it's not like Hollywood where it all moves a lot faster, and you put, you know, Leo DiCaprio and uh, Russell Crowe in a movie in a thriller, and you put it out because they sold, they are great stars and they sell their movies, and then suddenly that's a total flop, this latest picture that happened. And it opens very, very badly in the first week. And so Hollywood is already, I'm sure, revising its opinion of how they're gonna use those stars or that kind of property or whatever. In American opera, we only get a new American musical theater piece that is form-bending a, a couple of times, a few times a decade. You know, so it's a slower thing, and it's not. It doesn't get the kind of automatic support that art in Europe has traditionally gotten. Gets a little bit less now from the government. So it's a much, it's it's a it's a longer, slower road, and it's against. A, you've done work which has not enjoyed commercial success precisely because it was no. so, <laughs> because it was so a, a, a dark or so form-bending or whatever that is, and that, of course, is the most exciting work of all. Yeah, well, that's so, so that's such a hard... Although I'm contemplating doing Chihuahua, which opened better. <laughs> it did. It beat this film. You know. So whatever that's about. Maybe it has to do with the economic downturn. Whatever it's about, it's a, it becomes a fact of Hollywood lore, that these, and that, that equation is constantly shifted because that's part of the popular culture. We're not part of the popular culture. I, I, I have an issue when we say, you know, art is over here and then popular culture is over here. And, you know, when Marriage of Figaro, Figaro premiered, you know, when Mozart did it, it was like the popular event of its time. And the arias were so amazing that the audience made them, you know, made the singers perform them eight times in a row. And Joseph II the next day was so irate by this, he banned that. But, you know, it was, it was like, you know, on demand. People would 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 scream out loud and make a scene. And it was politically live. And it was politically live. And it was you know people waiting outside the theater all day long and pushing to get in. And you know that's what I hope. You know I I, I hope that we can look at a at a moment where theater, whether it's opera or musicals, is is you know challenging and not pandering and yeah. also popular. Well, I think you. you yeah. I, I will say this: you did succeed with the production of Hair that you have that's coming to Broadway where you took a well-known piece that is a very troubling book, mm -hmm. troubling story, suddenly made the word have 
relevance that it, I've, in, I've never seen before in a production of, of Hair, and I've seen a couple of them maybe, you know, uh, here and there. You, and I think it's because of your opera background mm. that maybe that's why this thing felt like less of a rock concert, um, just great songs that make you happy, right. but I don't get the story. Somehow or another, you found a way to make it into the opera that hair is, and I've always spoke yes, to this. Yes, yes, it's true. I've always spoke to uh, to students, and I always said, hair is actually an opera yep. in every sense of the word. I mean, I think Jesus Christ Superstar came along a little bit later, and The Who of the Time it came along a little later. Right, right. But hair has always been an opera. Yes, yeah. I agree with opera. you, yes. And I think that that illumination of that production for me was, I mean, how you illuminated that for me and for people, I think, was very successful. And there again, you, you are being very highbrow about hair. Hair has a lot of highbrow moments in it all because it employs the intellect and mm -hmm. it employs um, a sense of uh, duty and in, 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 yeah, mm -hmm. responsibility as an audience member because you have to give responsibility over. And that, to me, is mm -hmm. what makes a, a, a classical piece of work. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's pretty down there. You know, it's down right down there in the ground and the mud and in the water and all right, that. Right, so, right, so Maybe it, is it the wasn't blending the best. only her work in opera, but maybe just the your cultural literacy and the fact that That's you looked true. at the piece with some care. And that, you know, and maybe also that comes a little bit from the same feeling that people had about Bart Shear's production of South Pacific. Time has passed. And now it's a period piece where when we used to see it, it was so contemporary that we didn't quite know where to put it. Mm -hmm. Now we can look at that as a, mm. as, a, as a moment in American theater and politics and consider it at greater remove and, and, and give it and sort of see what it actually is. Exactly right. It's so interesting when we, when we do get more when we get a little bit more distant and we start to look at productions which are either slightly revisionist or in, in, at least in terms of the tradition, that change the, the mm -hmm. pact that the piece makes with the audience mm -hmm. or where we can make a more truthful one than we could when it was, was new. What I love about opera is you have a score, you have the music, and you can have a very, very useful partner in a conductor or yeah. with a composer, a composer, who are thinking, and the best conductors are ones who really know the music, really know the intention of the composer, know the history of it. I mean, I, I work with Jane Glover, a British composer, mm -hmm. a conductor. Mm -hmm. You know, she'll talk in the music sessions about the dramatic function of a fermata. Yes. And why did Mozart put the fermata there? And having a discussion with the singer about how you're going to sing the line and mm -hmm. make sense of that moment. You know. That's like what a director would be doing, but I have a conductor who's talking to the singer in musical terms about mm -hmm. how to interpret that. I mean, so. Well, that's the fun part of being a composer, though. You give them line readings. Yes, that's no, I love, love it. I'd say they can't take really it on. It. You know, you're looking for roadmaps as a director all the time, and to have a score, and to have that kind of. Well, I, think that's, I think that the sort of collaborative, it's not so much, you know, when I work with a, a great conductor for me is not someone who says, this is what the fermata means, not that Jane was doing that, but what might this fermata mean? And where everyone in the room is asking that question, but from an informed place, regardless of the right, style right. we're working um, in. Yes, which know? is... Which and is I think that's, and I'm glad that there are more people who are doing opera who used to do only theater. But it would be very interesting to find out from more people who do both, particularly people who've come to opera, what they feel they're taking away and bringing to theater directing, not just musical theater directing, mm -hmm. that comes from their engagement with operatic form. Mm -hmm. 
That would really interest me. Food, really food. good food. <laughs> I mean, you know. But I would, I would yeah. extend that to, good to food writers. Good I would food extend for that the to writers yeah. who've been invited to opera houses. I'd extend that to yes. designers who've exactly. been invited into the opera house. Exactly. Yeah. And then right. they come back to the musical theater world. I mean, like I say, the exchange is. It I don't like the word crossover, but it's it, the exchange between the two is so healthy and, and important. To I think that's a great place to end. A nice, happy note. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theater Wing, I'm Melissa Rose Bernardo, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theater. Hello, I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. The American Theater Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence and we support education in the theater. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, our work reaches beyond Broadway and beyond New York. Our Working in the Theater programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our theater company grants support New York not-for-profits and total nearly $3 million since they began, while the Jonathan Larson grants support emerging composers and lyricists. Our theater intern group helps young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org.